Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Okay, very excited about this guest. Been wanting to get him on for a few weeks, but he's a very in-demand, busy feller, but we're thrilled to have him with us. Another Young Voices contributor. This is a very smart man. Put him in your information rotation. I've really enjoyed listening to him, and I'm thrilled to talk to him and now call him a friend, Albie Amancona. How are you, sir? Thank you very much for joining us here on Hertel. Andrew, it's good to be here. I don't know whether to say good morning or good evening, but it's good to be on the show nonetheless. Yeah, as we're recording the afternoon in the U.S., uh, it's evening in London. It's been a very, very busy news day uh, for the U.K., so let's just start right there. We were going to talk about it anyway, but in the last few hours, uh, we've had some breaking news. Again, we're recording this, though, if you're listening to this on Wednesday morning. Uh, these things may have changed, but we've had some very high-profile resignations. For the American audience who doesn't understand what a chancellor of the Exeter is and these sorts of things, uh, these two gentlemen that resigned, how, who are they, first of all, in the government, and why is that a big deal that's kind of changed the narrative on this a little bit? So the two gentlemen that have resigned, I'll start with the health secretary because that's probably relatively easy for an international audience, but the health secretary is in charge of the NHS and healthcare for England, um, and then also social care as well. Uh, for England, as uh, so he essentially runs the NHS, was instrumental in the the sort of the, the response to COVID and a lot of the COVID regulations and the rules that came in place after Matt Hancock had to stand down last summer for the affair that he had with one of his advisors at the time. Um, so that's Sajid Javid, who was the health secretary. He was actually also previously home secretary and previously the chancellor. Um, and then he stood down, the, Sajid Javid stood down as Chancellor and Rishi Sunak took over as Chancellor. Um, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer is essentially the person that is, in, that is in charge of the Treasury, which is in charge of things like taxation, uh, things like government spending, um, and essentially has the purse strings of the United Kingdom. So two very powerful figures over the past two years in charge of the COVID policy um, and the COVID response. Yeah, and for the visual, if you watch Prime Minister Questions on Wednesday morning, these the last couple of weeks, these are the two guys that sit right beside Boris Johnson. Uh, that's who they are. Uh, to the outside observer, uh, when you're having crises and things like this, these are both ambitious men. Both of them have been named for you know a future in politics. What part of this is the current crisis? Because let, let's be adults here. They're not really learning anything about Boris Johnson. They don't already know. They know this man very intimately over a number of years. They've decided for their own self, that they need to step away and separate from him. So how do we parse that out in the visuals of this and also in the politics of it? My personal view is, is that I think it is unlikely that either of these two gentlemen would end up 
as a, as a real serious contender um, for for the leadership of the Conservatives for the leadership of the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom. Sajid Javid has actually already tried a few times and, and didn't get very far. And Rishi Sunak was involved in quite a serious um, tax scandal earlier on this year with his wife's non-dom status. She, she was she had a, a, basically a, a tax status that wasn't entirely in the United Kingdom. And because she is a daughter of a billionaire, that was a lot of money that she was saving. And that was seen as, as quite a big blow to any future leadership bids for Rishi Sunak. So I actually do think that these men have done this for moral reasons rather than to further their own careers. And in fact, in his resignation letter, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, acknowledged that this might actually be his last ministerial position. Does that give this heft? Because let's let's go to the guy who does have the job that this is all centered around, Boris Johnson. It's just been a drip, drip, drip this year. He ha- he'll have a high moment, and then we have a personal crisis, usually some somewhat self-inflicted, let's just be honest. Um, he'll have a high point. He'll get out of a scandal, and then another scandal comes. Is this going to give more weight than the last one? Because we've done this Boris Johnson resignation watch before. We've done it a few times. The British press is treating this like it's a lot bigger deal and more imminent. You're there, we're not, you tell us. Does it feel like that to you that this is different this time? I would always be hesitant to predict the downfall of Joris Boris Johnson. But this, to me, it does feel different because what all of the other uh, scandals were missing were these big cabinet resignations. And the Chancellor of the Exchequer is essentially the most important cabinet position after the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary because of how important the National Health Service is in the United Kingdom is also a very important cabinet position. To have both of those uh, resignations literally happen within minutes of each other, Andrew, they were announcing both of these resignations is quite a big blow. But there is nothing constitutionally which forces a prime minister to resign uh, after cabinet ministers uh, actually, you know, resign themselves. So what some people are thinking is that he could hold on until the 1922 committee has its elections in a couple of weeks' time and what, what we think might happen with the 1922 committee, which is essentially like a trade union of the Conservative Party, is that that it could elect essentially a bunch of rebels to the executive who could change the rules on when leadership on when votes of confidence rather can happen um, and then it could usher in a vote of confidence before conservative party conference, conference in october yeah albie amonco join us break this down for the american audience or the international audience a little bit though because this is the parliamentary system so boris johnson is the leader of the party but he's also a member of the parliament so in order for him to go, if he's not going to resign on his own, which everybody close to Boris says that's his ultimate nightmare, he does not want to resign in disgrace. If he decides to fight this, there's a lot of process involved here because basically what you're doing is the party is trying to take itself back from him being the leader. This isn't like the American system with the president where you know we, we've never removed a president from office through impeachment. We've had him impeached but not convicted. This There's a lot of dirty uh, processes here that are kind of unclear and kind of uncharted territory, really, if he decides to really fight this, isn't it? Because if he doesn't want to go, it's going to be hard to make him go, isn't it? Yes, it will be hard to make him go, but the Conservative Party has always been ruthless when it's come to getting rid of its leaders. So so the process that would happen if he chooses not to resign is there is a committee, as I said before, the 1922 committee, which is essentially like a trade union of backbench MPs. Now, the the, the 1922 committee has an executive committee, which is in charge of all of the leadership rules in the Conservative Party. Now, at the moment, Confidence votes can only happen once every 12 months, and there was a confidence vote just two weeks ago. 
uh, which would mean under current rules, there cannot be another one for 12 months, but there are elections for the 1922 committee executive coming up and the rebels essentially want to highlight, to hijack those elections, electing a bunch of MPs who want to change the 1922 committees so that, so that a vote of confidence could happen before the 12 month period and then usher in a new vote as quickly as possible. And then if he were to lose a majority of conservative MPs support, uh, he, would be, he would be ousted as prime minister and there would be a leadership election. Yeah. And the other option here that some have been talking about is they think it would be a desperate move. Would Boris Johnson call a general election and take his chances? So this is something which I've heard periodically over the last couple of weeks. It is actually something which the prime minister has denied. It would be a very high risk strategy, Andrew, because the conservatives aren't doing too well in the polls. They're not doing it's not sort of a, a 19 a 1990s level of polling disaster that we saw with Tony Blair and Sir John Major. But we are, you know, a good seven or 10 points behind Labour in the polls really quite consistently now for a couple of months. So it wouldn't seem to me to be an electorally prudent decision to go to the electorate right now to vote, to vote uh, in a general election. We've already had many over, well, since Brexit, really, since 2015. I think there have been three general elections and we, we don't need a fourth one. Yeah, Albi Amankoa joining us from over in the UK. Uh, crisis reveals things. Crisis brings pressure. Pressure reveals fault lines. How much of the political stuff that's going on in Parliament, and, and to be fair here, the Labour uh, Party has not exactly been covering themselves in glory either, although Boris is going to get all the headlines because of this. There, 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 it's been kind of a mess the last few weeks. How much of this is the crisis, the cost of living crisis? Every time we talk to our UK friends over there, they're like, oh, no, this is all anybody's talking about is cost of living. There is some international stuff. Northern Ireland's a mess. At, at some point, is there a feeling in England that the government, he, Boris Johnson's line has always been, we're going to get on with it. We're going to get on about the business. He's done that to that point. Does it feel like the government is kind of grinding down and getting under the weight of all this? And with the cost of living crisis, that's just so much more pressure and that's bringing a lot of these fault lines out. Undoubtedly, the biggest issue facing the British people at the moment is the cost of living crisis. You know, we've got inflation at nine point uh, at nine point one percent. We've got fuel prices spiraling out of control. We've got gas companies not passing on the government fuel duty cut onto consumers. People are really feeling the punch. And to the government's credit, they have actually come out with quite an unprecedented package uh, in support to the British people. A lot of people argue that there's not a necessarily a conservative way to handle a cost of living crisis by essentially handing out money to people. Other people like me would perhaps for tax cuts, but nonetheless, no one can argue that the government isn't at least trying to solve the problem. But all of that, Andrew, is being overshadowed uh, by the way that the Prime Minister and indeed Number 10, supported by the rest of the Cabinet, respond to what can actually be uh, quite simple events that just require a good response from the Prime Minister and a good response from the government, and none of that seems to have been happening. Why is the comms on the small things, and I don't, and I'm not meaning small as in, um, trivial matters because these are serious matters but he does good on brexit he had that wonderful optic of him walking around kiev you know he all he seems to get the big stuff and get in the mainstream of the british people on a lot of that stuff and it's just self-inflicted wounds on all this other stuff like just come out and say the truth about like partygate happened everybody went okay there's going to be a photo come out at some point like everybody kind of felt that one coming you know self-inflicted over and over and over again letting this minister and i don't want to get into the allegations because they still got to go to the process but you know ministers that you know are problematic hang around because you needed the votes and that's the way it looked 
why is it is it just part of his personality that big outward personality that he just sometimes doesn't handle this small stuff because it, it's almost baffling yeah this is part and parcel with who Boris Johnson is isn't it I wouldn't necessarily describe them as small things I would probably describe them as things which should be easy to handle it should not be difficult to handle a situation where an MP is has allegations of sexual assault against them which are then upheld it should not be difficult not to promote that person to a position where they're essentially handling the pastoral care of conservative backbench MPs that should be an easy thing to handle the partygate saga should have been, in my opinion, an easy thing to handle. It just required honesty. Um, and what a lot of Boris loyalists will say is he's got all of the big calls right, but when there are so many of these easy things to handle, which are handled abjectly terribly, it piles up and it ends up in a situation like this where we've got two senior cabinet ministers resigning. And I think this all actually stems from the Patterson scandal last year. So this has been going on uh, since around October or November time last year. Yeah. Albie Amancona joining us. That's why we have him. He says it way more elegantly than I did and got to the point much better from my bad question. Well done, sir. Appreciate that. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. That's the headlines coming out of Britain as today. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk some culture stuff, uh, his work on race. We're going to talk about how this is a universal human issue, but culture does seem to affect how it manifests itself quite a bit. Also talking some more about our friends over yonder from our side of the pond. Albie Amancona continues to join us on her tell right after this break. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Albie Amancona, great man who has a great insight on things. He's done a lot of media in the UK, probably not as familiar to an American audience. Please make sure you're following him. He is a graduate of London School of Economics, really sharp fellow. Okay, I want to talk about the race stuff, but let's start with the organization you've been working with. Um, Carf, just, just way of introduction, just explain to people what that is and why you saw a need for that uh, with your colleagues that do that with you. Absolutely. So founded Conservatives Against Racism uh, two summers ago with some fellow Conservative Party activists, really as a response to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement in London and how we felt that that whole race relations debate was not being conducted in the most constructive way. Um, and I'm fundamentally of the belief that Britain is best run under conservative governments. And that means uh, that as the demographic change happens in the United Kingdom, that is going to require um, more people from all different backgrounds in the UK, including ethnic minorities, to vote for the Conservative Party. I do not think it is a good enough reason, Andrew, for people not to vote for the Conservative Party because of the 
wrong perception that the party is racist and that they feel that they are a race traitor for doing so. You know, the values of having a, a small state, low tax, pro-business, pro-family environment where aspiration and self-reliance are important uh, are not values which are ascribed to one particular race. In fact, I would argue that my, my grandparents who came over here in the 1950s had those exact beliefs that many conservatives have today. You mentioned your grandparents and your own history. Uh, migration and immigration are obviously very hot topics uh, in the UK. The UK has always had a history of this. Where is it really at? Turn the noise down of the news of just what we're seeing from the outside, um, whether it's the channel stuff, the Rwanda stuff, um, just turn the noise down and tell us the average person in England and the UK, where are they at on things like immigration and race? Is it a day-to-day -day problem for folks? Is it better than it was? Is it worse than it was? Where are we at with it, do you think? It's really interesting. It's a really interesting question, actually, Andrew, because when it comes to legal migration, if we actually look at the net migration figures for this year, and actually since Brexit, I think it's the highest that they've ever been. And yet in terms of, of, of where migration is, and immigration is rather on the agenda of the British people, it's actually come down since Brexit, because there's this perception now that having left the uh, European Union single market and no longer being uh, uh, forced to, to adhere to freedom of movement, that there is this idea of having control of migration. So on the legal side of migration, Andrew, I would say that the British people are, it's, it's, not, it's not something which bothers that many people compared to when we were in the European Union. It was really something that was quite up high on the political agenda. You had numerous uh, conservative governments pledging to get my, net migration figures back into the tens of thousands that has now been dropped and it's not really caused that much of an issue. But then on the illegal, illegal side, it really has become much more of an issue. This, this issue of the channel boats crossing uh, has really captured the minds of the British public and many people want to, want to see that sort of illegality and suffering and exploitation stopped and that is what the government is attempting to do um, rather badly some might say or rather well others might say with the Rwanda policy. Let's let's talk about the cultural difference for a second because race is a universal problem across humanity but it really does seem like whatever culture you're in dictates how that manifests itself. For you know America of course we have our, our racial issues in history we're having a problem where we can't even talk about it right now but we have our civil rights movement obviously slavery in the past um, England's a little different. England abolished slavery ahead of us. But then at the same time, with all our racial problems, when you talk about Europe, you guys use uh, soccer and football, football to use soccer to us, a lot talking about race because that's how it gets in the headlines a lot. We don't have to have empty stadiums for sporting events either. What is it about different cultures that race and racism tends to manifest differently because of that? Is it just the human nature part of it or is part of that how the governments and the cultures are dealing with things? I think it's a bit of both. I also think it's part, part, partially to do with history and actually how migrants ended up getting to this country and whether or not you would even kind of class people of different skin colors migrants. You know, in the US, it's a very different situation to Europe when you've got African-Americans and, and white Americans or however you describe uh, white European-Americans. I'm not sure of the exact terminology, but you wouldn't argue, I don't think, that an African-American was any more or less of an immigrant than a wasp was, for example. At least that's a view from the United Kingdom. Whereas in Britain, of course, all black people that live in Britain are sort of two, three, 
four generations from being migrants. So I say that my grandparents came here in the 1950s. So I think the history of Europe and the history of America is very different. We also didn't have slavery here on British shores, even though, of course, we were major beneficiaries from the slave trade. We didn't actually live with slaves in Britain in the same way that you did in the South in America. So a lot of those uh, segregation laws which were in place in the US, which held, I guess, African-Americans back didn't exist to the same extent in Britain. So I think the history um, of how immigrants got to this country or how people of darker skin tones got to Britain and got to America um, is a key differentiator in how race manifests today. If, does the UK look at places like America? What, what's the perception of our way of handling race uh, from overseas? Because I look, I lived in Europe two different times. It, the perception is different that we just have a different kind of race problem in America. What is it right now? What's the perception? You, you mentioned the Black Lives Matter protests. There's been other things. Um, some of that tried to port over to England, the various different effects. What is the perception of, of how America handles race from your view over there? I think my perception of how America handles race is that things seem to be going awry. On one side of things, on the left wing of politics, the sort of democratic view, you've got critical race theory infiltrating, you know, what used to be uh, quite a quite a peaceful and reasonable civil rights movement. And it's turned it into this movement where, uh, you know, the going mentality is that all white people are racist and that there is absolutely nothing that any black person can do as an individual to rid themselves of this structure of racism, which has been created around them and everything, you know, everything to do with American society holds that back. And then you've got the other side of politics, which seems to not really accept racism as a problem at all. And then you mix in your, um, your, 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 your different situation, let's say, on, on gun laws and gun rights. And it seems to create a tinderbox, uh, which we just don't really have in Europe, or I wouldn't argue that we have in Europe. And that's not to say that I think that we're handling race better in Europe. I just think some of the factors that we have make it less of a, make it less of a fraught issue. Yeah, we definitely have some built-in cultural stuff that we have not worked out amongst ourselves. That's a very fair criticism. Like, like I said, we're, we're at a point where we're having trouble. We haven't developed a common language on how to talk about race, I think is a good way to explain it. And I don't know that we're anywhere close to doing that, but we're going to keep working on the issues. There's one thing you did with this organization that I found really interesting. Uh, there's plenty of great organizations. They talk, they advocate, they do social media. Y'all took it one step forward. You're getting people to put their names on what you're trying to do. And I'm talking MPs, members of parliament. That would be the equivalent to our Congress people. Why is it important to you and your organization? It's right on the front page of your website. Why is it so important for you to get them to put their names on it, to get them to commit to these principles, put their faces on it? Um, race is one of those things where getting accountability for it is really, really hard. But you seem to make it a center point of what you're trying to do. I find that admirable. Why is that important to y'all, though? It's important to have buy-in, I think, from across the Conservative Parliamentary Party with any political uh, organisation that you are running, 
whether or not that is an organisation which is calling for lower taxes. I'm involved in lots of those or organisations which are calling for better trade relations with the US, like Conservative Friends of America are doing a very good job of doing that, or, um, or grouping around, around solving the problem of race relations and, 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 and selling that Conservative dream of aspiration, hope and, and pride in country um, to ethnic minorities across Britain. It's important to get that parliamentary buy-in because ultimately it is parliamentarians who are the people who are in the position to be uh, making those arguments in parliament and, and changing laws and passing legislation and actually earlier on this year the government re released its response to uh, what was seen as quite a controversial report on race relations the Sewell report the uh, inclusive britain strategy came out earlier on this year um, and there are 76 policy actions which are going to be taken forward and implemented over the rest of this parliament um, so if you do get mps bought in on your mission you can make real change and that is something that we were campaigning the government to do for a long time one thing that the uh, and the left and the right a little differently over there, but just for the sake of uh, common discussion, one thing the left in America has done better than the right has when it comes to things like race is understanding that you just cannot talk about race without talking about also talking about economics and cultural things. What is it in the conservative party over there? You are you mentioned things like lower taxes. Obviously, the cost of living uh, situation is just crushing everybody right now. That's on everybody's mind. This would seem like the perfect moment to educate folks of like, look, it's indisputable that racism changed. The perceptions of racism changed based on economic strata. People look at poor people of race differently than rich people of race. How is this not a moment where even though we're having a crisis, we should take it make it a teachable moment and go, look, you have to talk about economic and policy when you talk about race. They've got to go hand in hand. Is that something the conservatives are going to be able to do in the near future, do you think? I think it is going to be difficult for a Conservative Party at the moment with the economic economic agenda that it has had to start selling this sort of Thatcherite, Reagan, sort of low tax, small state, uh, pro-business environment conservatism that, that lifts everyone up and makes you know, countries and even the world a more prosperous society. But I do think that has to be at the core of any discussions um, around race, race relations and any discussions around race relations and being a conservative, because those principles of economic empowerment, of self-reliance, of financial freedom um, are not reserves of people who are of a certain skin colour. Um, and actually, I think if you actually look at a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the black famous people in this country you know if we're thinking a lot about, about a lot of athletes a lot of rappers or people high up in business they all share those principles but very few of them vote for the conservative party and when we need to change that perception and that's what me, me and my organization are trying to do how much of it uh, we talk so much about culture even on our own show here culture and politics because you just can't unwind that ball they go too much together over there in the UK, and you can speak on it to the American side too if you want to, but in Europe wider, how much of this is more of a cultural problem than a policy problem? Because let's be honest, there's only so much policy that can change human behavior. You can only legislate so many things. How much of it is going to be a cultural fix or even probably a generational fix maybe is a better way to term it, as opposed to a policy fix? I know we need to do both at the same time, but what do you think the balance there is? 
I do think it is primarily a cultural fix because you actually look at the 76 policy, the policy policies being brought forward by the government in their inclusive British strategy. They are policies that, in fact, um, left wing, well, people on all wings of politics have been calling for for a very long time and especially anti-racist campaigners. And these are being put forward by a conservative government. So I think the policies are there. I do personally think it is something which is more cultural. It's about how we talk about race, it's about how we sell this broader idea of, of, of capitalism to a generation of younger people who feel that maybe capitalism hasn't quite worked for them. A lot of us aren't able to afford to buy our own homes. A lot of us aren't able to participate in the labour market with the same job security as our parents have done. You know, we're even, we're even experiencing a fertility crisis because people just don't feel like they have the economic fundamentals to have children. And I think this builds into this whole, this general feeling that capitalism more broadly needs a, a bit of a control alt delete moment. Um, and I think this is part of that moment. Do, let's just deal with that there in the minutes we have remaining though. What's the language we should be using? Because like you just said, we need to be able to discuss it. What's a better terminology? Do we need some new nomenclature? Because, and, and I want, you know, one of my core principles has always been, you know, economic freedom is freedom. Because if you can't eat and you can't take care of your family, that's going to trump everything else. So like you just said, how do we marriage those things? What's some of the better language we should be using in nomenclature, do you think? I think we've got to stop being so liberal with the word racist. To be fair, when I say we, I mean the commentariat and, and the media more broadly, I think is, is, is really overusing that word to a point where for some instances, it doesn't really mean anything anymore. Um, I think, but on the other side as well, I think we've got, we've got to stop all of this, this woke, anti-woke nonsense because no, no one's that when people use words like woke and when people use words like anti-woke it's, it's they're very nebulous phrases and no one really knows what they mean we, we've got to be specific if we are talking about how are we going to improve the educational outcomes of black caribbean boys that's what we need to be talking about if we are going to be talking about how do we replicate the educational success of the British East Asian community uh, for the rest of British children. We need to be specific about that. We need to be specific with the language that we're using and not use these nebulous terms like institutionally racist or woke or anti-woke. We need to be specific, targeted, and that's how we'll move forwards. How do we, because racism by the very definition of the term is a people problem, how do we make people understand that it is a people problem that you have to deal with on a personal level? Because I think that's where a lot of the disconnect, I, you know, on social, you know, everybody's 10 foot tall and bulletproof on social media and says whatever they don't in their daily lives, their daily interactions with their communities and things like that. How do we talk about that issue on an interpersonal basis? Because like you said, we, we use racism way too fast usually, although there are some racists, most of it is prejudice and born out of ignorance. Uh, how do we use the language change in that situation to make this back to a people problem and kind of make it everybody's problem to work on a little bit as opposed to just something we're yelling about on social media? Genuinely, and this is going to sound very British of me to your audience, but I just think we need to get our manners back. And this is not just on the issue of race relations. I think this is just on any issue which is discussed on social media nowadays. It just descends into people hurling insults at each other and then trying to get each other fired for saying something which is wrong and not really giving people the same 
um, respect and chances that you would if you were having a face-to-face -face conversation with that person. I think our human relationships have become uh, less human in a way. So it's harder for us to see that other point of view. It's harder for us to give that ground, to let someone make a mistake, apologize and then learn from it. And that's actually one of the cool parts of my campaign at Conservatives Against Racism. There will be people that say things which are wrong, but as long as they learn from that situation, show some contrition after that situation and then behave differently afterwards, we should allow people to, to, to make that journey on their own and commend them for it afterwards. Yeah, what a concept to have a little graciousness with folks. That, that would cure a lot of our societal ills, I think. Uh, Albie Almond Cohen, what a wonderful conversation. We will have you back uh, very soon, my friend. But until we get you back on the show again, let folks know where they can be following you on social media, your organizations you're working with, and all the things you have going on over there, my friend. Absolutely. Well, it's been great to speak to you, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, anyone that's found anything that I've said reasonably interesting and no worries if you don't you can find me at um, at Albie Amancona on Twitter and then the website is carfe.org. Yep and his uh, social media information is in the lower third graphic there if you're watching on YouTube, Facebook or the Big Talker app. Uh, we will do this again very soon. Hope to have you back. Thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate it my friend. We'll talk again real soon. Thank you Andrew. Thank you sir. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.